Good morning, brothers. Hope you're doing well. It is a joy to once again uh, study God's Word with you. I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Now, if you've read ahead, you know that this chapter is filled with uh, amazing stories and, and teaching from Jesus. Hopefully, we'll be able to cover it all in great detail. Um, but for me, I think the most powerful story in, in this chapter and a half, because we're going to read into 16, is the story of the Canaanite woman. Now, we're going to talk more about her in just a moment, but just on the outset, for all intents and purposes, this lady was the very definition of a misfit. Uh, she was a social, political, ethnic, even moral other to the who's who in Israel. Uh, both the conservative and the liberal establishments, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both ends of the spectrum, despised women like her, people like her, based off who she was and where she came from. They ostracized her. They alienated her. Um, they wiped her hands of her. Uh, she was the very definition of an outsider. Now, I, I like this story um, because I think it's easy for all of us to relate to her, on, on, at least on one level. I'm willing to bet that most of us have been made to feel like an outsider. I bet some of you feel like an outsider right now. Perhaps you've experienced your fair share of judgmentalism or hostility from the religious elites, the, the who's who in our religious communities. Perhaps you've been met with silence before or indifference, maybe even rejection from certain churchy folks in our environments. Perhaps you, you don't even really feel truly at home in whatever church you go to. You have been made to feel like an outsider by other people. I've been there before. Which is another reason that I love this story of the Canaanite woman so much, brothers, because in this story, Jesus reminds us that it does not matter at all what other people say about us. All that matters is what we say and think about Jesus. Because that's the difference. That's, that's what differentiates true insiders from outsiders. That when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in him alone, he moves us from the fringes and brings us into the heart of God's kingdom where we're transformed from being strangers to full-fledged members of the one true royal family of God where we're cherished and loved by him now and forever. <laughs> Amazing news. And that's what we're going to pick up on in this chapter. Now, in Genesis, or rather in Matthew chapter 15, we're going to see that Jesus, uh, as he's been doing, he's further demonstrating what true and faithful discipleship is. Now, he's going to do that particularly in the context of, of his word and what true holiness is. But, but all the while, I just want you to pick up that he's revealing himself to be uh, the true Messiah to trust in. That he's come, that he's the hope not only for, for Israel, but he's also the hope for, for outsiders and misfits like ourselves. Now, we have four points today, and my hope is that through each of them, would be encouraged to go to and to cling to Christ alone and also to be galvanized to share the beautiful message of Christ to other misfits like ourselves. Now, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. 
Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained from me is now given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you just said that? He answered, Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And so Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? She said, Yes, Lord, even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that at that, the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, well, we're going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were four thousand men beside women and children. 
And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Chapter 16. And the fairies, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When is it evening, you say? It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Did you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I'm not speaking about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful uh, for another day where we can come together as your people, brothers in Christ, to study your word. We pray that you would open up our eyes to the beauty and the power of your truth, that by your spirit we wouldn't simply be informed, but truly transformed and made to be more like your beloved Son. We love you, Father, and it's in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus we pray. Amen. The first point that, uh, that Matthew brings to our attention is in verses 1 through 9, that true disciples exalt the authority of God's word alone. And true disciples exalt the authority of God's word alone. As we've been seeing in our, our Matthew study, the greatest threat uh, to the church did not come from outside the church, but, but was actually coming from within. Now, I think sometimes we, we often fail to perceive these threats or really evil in general because we often associate those things with, you know, like pitchforks or, or these really threatening things on the outside of us like uh, cultural trends or um, secular movements or, or government persecution, all of which are, are dangerous, right? But that's what we associate threats and evil with. But the truth is that Satan is far more subtle than that. You know, the evil one, if he can't trip us up with outright immorality, he is he is happy as a clam to, to do so using good things, uh, traditions and practices that we have that might even have the reputation of having wisdom. He is more than happy of using those things to distract our attention away from Jesus and his gospel. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in Matthew chapter 15. And that's exactly what Jesus warns us about as, as his true disciples. Now, at this point in Matthew's narrative, um, the religious establishment, they have just grown tired of Jesus, right? That's what we've been seeing. I mean, they, they are sick and tired of all of these crowds just flocking to the Lord. Um, you know, people are infatuated with Jesus. They are mesmerized by his words of grace and his deeds of wonder. And they, they, they want to stop Jesus in his tracks because no one's paying attention to them anymore. And so therefore, they send a special delegation from Jerusalem 
to, to trip up Jesus, to prove to the crowds that this man is not the Messiah, but rather but rather he's a phony. Now that's the context coming into to chapter 15. Now, if you look at verse two, this is their ingenious plan. <laughs> they say, Jesus, tell us, why don't your disciples wash for supper? <laughs> that was their plan of how they're going to prove Jesus of being a phony. It's kind of a strange tactic, right? Crowds, clearly this man is not the Messiah. He's got bi- bad hygiene practices. I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're saying. Now, I assure you, they're, they're not charging Jesus with being a bad parent that doesn't wash his kids' grubby little hands before they eat fried chicken Sunday night suppers. That's not, that's not what's happening here. What's happening? Well, in the tradition of the elders, they said that if, that if one of us were to come into contact with something that's unclean, then that would make us unclean, unfit for worship. So we would have to go through um, these, ritura- or these, uh, these rituals, these purification rites to make us ready for worship, to be right in the presence of God. Uh, now, somewhere along the lines, the Pharisees, you know, over-exaggerated this. Their minds got to working, and they thought to themselves, oh my goodness, the implications of this are disastrous. We got to tell the people. So they so they gathered all of Israel and they said, listen, guys, we've been thinking through this, we, the wise elders, and the implications, I mean, just think about it. Say if you go to the grocery store, right, and you accidentally pick up some unclean food. You don't eat it. That would be disastrous. You just touch it. But what does that make you? It makes you unclean. What are we going to do about this? Or here's another example. Say you're just walking down the street and you brush up against a Gentile. Now, I know that none of us want to brush up a Gentile, but but guess what? There's more Gentiles in our community now. It's bound to happen and you might not even know it. You might be unclean and you don't know it and, and you're not right for worship and you're going to try to worship and you're going to sin against God. What in the world are we going to do? This is disastrous. Have no fear. We came up with a plan. Before we eat for supper, you know, before we worship, we're going to lift up our hands and we're going to get special water from, from a special basin and drip it over our hands. And guess what? That's going to make you ceremonially clean. That's going to make you pure before God. You're going to be able to maintain your Jewishness. You're welcome, Israel. <laughs> that's what everybody was doing. And that's the problem because that's that's what the disciples were not doing. Jesus and, and his band were breaking away from, from the tradition and the wisdom of the elders. And that was bad news. Now, before we move on, I just want us to, to, to remember um, the, this ritual, this tradition, it was birthed out of good motivation. You know, the Pharisees, they were the conservative watchdogs of their day. Right, that they they hated the corrupting influence of the world of the Romans and of Gentiles, and and they wanted to remain pure. They wanted Israel to remain pure, and and so this was they had good intentions. But somewhere along the line, in order to protect Israel, they added stipulations. They added law to to God's word, and rather than protect Israel, they actually started hurting Israel. Because as Jesus tells us in this passage, what he, what, what he is saying is that whenever we, we add law where there is no law, whenever we add stipulations to God's word, we actually undermine the authority of God's word. And so in verses 4 through 6, Jesus points out this error, and he also generally points out their hypocrisy. And he does so by referring to the, the actual commandment, children are to honor their mothers and their fathers, their parents. 
Now, it's really interesting. The reason that Jesus chose this specific commandment is because the, the elders, they had this tradition, another tradition. And this tradition actually enabled older children to avoid caring for and loving and providing for their parents. And this is how it went. Mom and dad, we love you so much. Um, you, you took care of us our entire lives. We want to honor you. And we know that you need this money and these resources to provide for you in your old age. But here's the thing. We're dedicating all of this to the Lord. So this isn't yours anymore. We're no longer obligated to help you. We're really sorry, though. That's what they were doing. Now, on the surface, it's kind of like what you and I would do to avoid paying income tax on, on certain funds. We would put it in a Roth IRA or something like that. But, but that's what they were doing. But they had evil intentions behind it. They were trying to manipulate God's word in order to avoid actually following God's word. So with these um, man-made traditions and, and their wisdom, they were elevating it to such a degree that it was actually over and against the, the authority of God's word. They had absolutely no concern at all whatsoever to discover what God actually desired of them. They were just picking and choosing what they wanted to do and how they wanted to know and follow the Lord. Now, because of this, because of they were, were exalting their own wisdom and their own traditions and their own practices above the authority of God's word, not only were they endangering themselves, they were leading others astray, and there were disastrous consequences if you, if you followed their teaching. Now, first off, it promoted self-centeredness. Anytime they came up to something in God's word that they didn't understand or they didn't like or was hard to do, they tried to find ways to, to come out from under that authority. Ways that would only benefit themselves, no one else, and certainly would not bring glory and honor to the Lord. It also fueled self-righteousness. We saw when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount that legalism did not make God's word more burdensome and made it achievable. That is, when they added all these ticky-tacky laws onto God's Word, they pretty much gave themselves a checklist that they could, they could check off and things that were easy to do, which made them feel like they were righteous, and therefore they never saw their need to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. So elevating uh, their own wisdom and, and these traditions of men over the authority of God, first off, it promoted self-centeredness, it fueled self-righteousness, and it Lastly, it made their worship empty. And this is what Jesus says in verses 8 and 9 when he quotes Isaiah 29, where the prophet of old called out God's people for worshiping God in vain. He says, you, you honor the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And, and that is in part due to all of these traditions, Israel, that you've made. And, you, and you've made them in such a way to benefit you and no one else. You've completely neglected the summary of God's word, which is to love him with all of your heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, your worship is useless. So Jesus is saying that this vain worship, this self-centeredness, this self-righteousness, all of it results when we elevate the traditions of men as wise as they may be over and against the, the authority of God's word. Now, brothers, we, we just have to ask ourselves, how does this apply to us? Where is it in our lives that we are being led astray or unduly influenced by things other than God's word? I doubt very seriously that this uh, hand cleansing right is, is causing us to stumble. But surely there are other things. Surely there are 
traditions um, in our church communities, or maybe even in our church denomina- denominations, that we that we are exalting more than than God's word. They might have been wise traditions, but we're, but we're making them the end all be all. Perhaps there's cultural traditions that we're elevating, especially those of us who live in strong cultural environment environments like like living down south where there's a strong culture. Is there something in our communities that we're elevating to a place that it doesn't need to be? Perhaps there's a contemporary trend that we personally identify with that we've elevated to a level where it, where it does not belong. We have to ask ourselves questions practical questions. Is my way of worship the only way to worship God? Is my political party the only party that Christians belong? Have I made my personal preferences standards for who is and who is not a Christian, and therefore have built up barriers to those with different preferences to receive the gospel or to feel at home in my church? Have I availed myself to the entire counsel of God, or have I just picked those places that I like and discarded those passages and those doctrines that I don't like? What Jesus presents us here is that we must ask ourselves these reflective questions because none of us are above this. And we must see that if we are magnifying the word of God over the traditions and the wisdom of men like true disciples, First, true disciples, they, they exalt the authority of God's word alone. Secondly, in verses 10 through 20, we see that true disciples desire hearts of holiness. True disciples desire hearts of holiness because after all, isn't Jesus truly after our hearts? That's, that's the main point, isn't it? Um, outside of the Bible, the books that I've been reading mostly lately, or books uh, that my three-year-old son enjoys, which has uh, had devastating consequences on the illustrations that I use. So bear with me on this. One of the books that we've been reading lately is about Winnie the Pooh. I don't remember the name, and you don't care, but it's about Winnie the Pooh. And there's this one chapter in this book where Winnie decides to, to catch himself an elephant, right? So he digs a hole, and uh, he puts a, a giant pot of honey in the middle of the hole because, well, don't you know, elephants love honey, just like Winnie the Pooh. So that's what he does, and he goes hide in a, a bush and wait for an elephant to, to fall in this hole because, well, elephants love honey. But Winnie the Pooh starts thinking to himself, what if that's not really honey? I know that it had a, a label on the front that said honey, but but I've been tricked before. And so when he jumps into that hole, he opens up the jar and he scoops out the top layer and he tastes it. And ah, he's delighted because it's because it's, it's really honey. But then he thought to himself, maybe it's just the top layer that's honey. I've been tricked before. Maybe maybe under this top layer, there's something gross like like grease or or, or something else. And so he took another scoop and he was delighted, right? Because it was honey. Ah, but what about the third layer? So he scooped and scooped and scooped and layer after layer after layer until he got to the bottom of the jar. And of course, his plan was ruined because he ate all the honey, but he was delighted because it truly was a jar of honey. And you're asking yourself, Barton, how are you going to tie this to Matthew chapter 15? Well, here's the Jesus juke. Jesus does not care about our labels. He doesn't care about what label we've given ourselves. He does not care about what labels other people have given us. He doesn't even care about what's on the surface. What he's concerned is about what's beneath at the bottom of that jar. He's concerned about the condition of our hearts. 
what's down in the bottom. That's what Jesus is interested in. And that's what verses 10 through 20 are about. Um, as you know, the, the Jews, they were very concerned about their um, purity laws. Um, they, they were very concerned about what the label said. Um, they were very concerned about what was going on on the surface, these, these tangible behavioral do's and don'ts, right? Because that showed them and other people, at least on the surface, that they were, that they were pure. But they missed the entire point of the purity laws, is what Jesus is saying. They missed the entire point. Because they were too concerned about the, the outward behaviors. They, they missed what, what God was doing. He, God is showing us what type of people he desires for us to be. And, and by, by focusing just on the behavioral aspect and, and never being concerned about the, about the purity of heart, that they, they missed the entire point. And so in these verses, then Jesus, again, points out their error. And he does so by giving this really strange riddle where he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of it. Now that befuddled everybody, including the disciples. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Is he talking about vomit? I don't, I don't understand. What, what would he mean? What comes out of your mouth defiled? Jesus, do you not know about the purity laws? Easy. I mean, you're offending these elders here. Have you never read Leviticus? I mean, that's what that's what they were saying. They were completely confused as to what Jesus was saying. Now, question is, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying that the most present danger um, is not what we do with our behavior. It's not the, the actions that we do. The most present danger is the conditions of our hearts. And therefore, our greatest spiritual need is not clean hands, Jesus says, but rather is a transformed heart. Now, Jesus has made this teaching elsewhere, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, but he's bringing it back up to the surface here. Isn't it interesting that long before psychologists notice that what people say indicate what's going on in the inside of them, Jesus said that our words reveal our hearts. So it is true that the list that Jesus gives us in verse 19, things like murder and adultery, those do make us unfit for God's presence. Those are, those are gross sins. But what Jesus is saying here, that those sins don't begin in full bloom. They begin in our hearts. And it just so happens that our words reveal our heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So the, so the discussion here is not in keeping with the traditions of what the elders say to do. The discussion ought to be, be around what type of people does God want us to be? And therefore, the main question on, on each of our hearts ought to be, how can I have a pure heart? That ought to be the, the greatest desire. The greatest question that we should ask is, is, how do I have a pure heart before God? Now, Jesus, he does not immediately give us the remedy for our bad hearts, which, which all of us do. That actually is revealed in the chapters to come. But ultimately, Jesus reveals himself to be the remedy, doesn't he? That through his death and resurrection and the gift of his spirit, Jesus takes us and gives us a new heart and makes us new and clean and acceptable before God when we place our, our faith in him. So Jesus is saying that the main point of tension here is not whether if we should or should not do good things and avoid evil things. Of course, we're supposed to live moral lives and, and, and follow the Lord. But the question, the tension is, are we putting our hope in the things that we do and don't do? Or are we running to Christ? 
That's what Jesus is bringing to the surface. I love what um, Bishop Ryle, a famous quote of his, this is what he says. He says, what is the first thing that we need in order to be Christians? Answer, a new heart. What is the sacrifice that God asks us to bring him? Answer, a broken and contrite heart. What is true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. And what is the chief request that wisdom incarnate Jesus makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. Beautiful. Jesus is saying it's all about the heart. It's about what is at the bottom of, of that honey jar. True holiness begins in the heart. And Jesus is saying the only way that transformation is possible, brothers, is when we go to him. Jesus is saying that true disciples, they, they exalt the authority of God's word alone and they trust not in their own record, not in what they have done or have not done, but they trust in Christ alone. Now, thirdly, a true disciple has compassion for the outsider. We see this in verses uh, 21 through 39. Now, in this section, we come to a place where Jesus is further demonstrating and revealing, you could even say redefining God's mission uh, for the people of Israel, um, for his disciples. And he's doing it through these two stories that we see next. One, the Canaanite woman. And secondly, this uh, this second mass feeding story, similar to the one that we just read about in Matthew chapter 14. But I want us to focus on this woman first. What in the world is happening here? This story with the Canaanite lady, I mean, it is just shocking, right? Reading those verses, didn't your heart just kind of go out to her? And it was shocking too, because Jesus, the gracious one, he seems so cruel in the way that he deals with her. But, but brothers, I assure you, Jesus is not being cruel. His grace is shining all over the page. And even though that we might not have picked up on it at first, and certainly the disciples didn't, this woman did. She kept on going to him. Now, what in the world is happening? I want us to, to note a few things that are happening in the text. Uh, first off, just pay attention to the geography. After, after Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees, and after this, this major controversy of, of what's happening with uh, who is and who is not pure, uh, immediately Jesus strategically enters into a Gentile territory, right? He enters into this Gentile territory, people that were defiled and unclean, according to the elders of Israel. And the first person that he meets with is a Gentile woman, Gentile, again, unclean, but not just any Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And we remember those guys. They were from that, that evil tribe, an ancient enemy of Israel who were so sinful that God gave them over. We saw that in the conquest narratives. Oh, and, and to top it all off, her daughter is possessed by a demon. This lady to the Jewish elite was just, you know, unclean times infinity. I mean, just don't touch her at all whatsoever. Now, it seems as if that Jesus um, was treating her just like any other Jewish person would have treated her. You know, even his disciples begged Jesus to send this lady away. They were horrified. Jesus even called her a dog, if you can believe it which that was a common, ordinary, derogatory term 
that Jews called Gentiles, right? Because in the Jewish mind, God's work of grace and redemption and, and restoration, that was only for them. It was not for people outside of their circle. It wasn't for outsiders like this Gentile dog who was subhuman and, and, and just not good enough to be in God's, to God's plan. And so it seems as if Jesus is going along with the flow, right, by calling her a dog. But, but scholars point out that the way that Jesus says this with the verbiage that he uses and the tense of the different words that he uses, there's a sense of irony as if this woman isn't the real dog. He says it as if there's a smile on his face, scholars say, and I think they're right because it's clear that this woman, this woman picks up on what Jesus is saying because she doesn't run away offended. She keeps coming back, right? So what is it that Jesus is doing here? And what is it that this woman is picking up on? Well, first off, it's clear that Jesus is redefining who is the true insider. Or to use Matthew's language, who is truly clean. I mean, right, just, just look at chapter 15 as a whole, right? Jesus, first off, he is attacked and assailed by the religious people, the clean-cut religious folks who thought themselves pure of heart, um, based off their performances, based off their um, where they've been, based off their background, they they thought they were clean cut God worshiping dudes, right? And they were assailing and assaulting Jesus, and, and Jesus turns their definition of purity up on its head, theologically speaking. But then he comes to this woman, uh, the last person that even the disciples thought that Jesus would go to 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 prove his point. And his point is, it's not, that, it's not these religious know-it-alls that are the true insiders. Who is this misfit? This woman who is currently living on the wrong side of the tracks, who has a horrid past. This ethnic and social and political and, and religious other. This is the insider. Not them, this lady. Why? <laughs> because secondly, she demonstrates genuine saving faith. And that's the difference between her and these Pharisees. Look at her faith. Notice off first, the object of her faith is Jesus. It's not her record. It's not her, um, it's not her uh, history. It's not where she's been. It's not anything other. The object of her faith is the person of Christ alone as Messiah. She knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man, this Jesus, is the Messiah. The Jews didn't even believe that. She said, Lord, son of David, messianic terms. She's not Jewish, remember. But she knew that Jesus must be this. And so she is completely, wholeheartedly devoted, just laser focused on him as savior. And she says, you're my only hope, Jesus. Jesus was the object of her faith. First off, the, the basis of her appeal wasn't anything other than the mercy of Jesus. It wasn't based off of things that she has done or has left undone. The basis of her appeal in coming into the presence of the Messiah is his mercy. That's why, theologically speaking, she goes, you know what? I am a dog. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve your blessing and your grace, but I will gladly be a dog if that means I can just be in your house. Master, have mercy on me. What wonderful humility. 
So the object of her faith was Jesus. The basis of her request was the mercy of Jesus. And thirdly, she was persistent, folks. Listen, scholars tell us that the reason that Jesus kind of gives her the, the Heisman pose, uh, you know, one or two times is for two reasons. One, to prove this woman's faith to her and to show her faith to us, to see how persistent she is. She just kept on going back to him because she knew that Jesus was his was her only hope. Much like Jacob, she, she wrestled with Jesus, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. She was not letting go. She was just grabbing onto him because she knew that she was sunk without him. And that's the difference, right? She, all of her hope and it was, was wrapped up in Christ and his mercy. And that was the difference between her and, and these religious people who thought they knew everything. It's kind of like the, the parable between the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple where the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. The tax collector said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was the tax collector who left that day justified. That's the difference. Now, another reason that Jesus let this play out was because he was teaching his disciples and us something about his, about his global mission. That it wasn't just for Israel, right? But it was for outsiders. That's what the, the feeding of the, the 4,000 was really about in verses 29 through 39. Uh, if you remember in chapter 14, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that was with primarily a, a Jewish audience. But here, he's in Gentile country. And he's bringing that same blessing that he brought Israel first, now to the Gentiles. And he, he is saying, listen, my, 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 my mission, my redemption, my grace isn't just for you guys, but it's for everyone. He, he's, he's redefining, he's reshaping how his people thought about what God is doing in the world. It wasn't nationalistic. It wasn't just for a certain type of people, but, but he was fulfilling the promises of Abraham that all of the world would be blessed through him. This is what Jesus is demonstrating. For example, if you just look at verses 29 through 31, when Jesus is healing people, what he's doing there is he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and in Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6, where Isaiah tells us that the promised one, the Messiah, would do the things that Jesus is doing in these verses. And so Jesus is revealing to his people, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to the crowds, that, that he truly is the promised Messiah. That he has come to bring Israel out of true exile and to vindicate them as his people. But through the story of the Canaanite lady and through the feeding of these, of these Gentile people, this massive crowd, Jesus is saying, however, the time has come for the nations to share in this blessing. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating. That this blessing wasn't just for them, but it's for the nations. It's for the outsiders. And it's for the misfits. People like you and me. In Genesis, or rather in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is redefining what is true discipleship. He, he's redefining who is true Israel, and he's giving his people, including us, our marching orders that we are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to outsiders like ourselves. And so the reflective questions that we're left with, friends, are who are the others around us? Who are those people that are not like us? 
Who are those people who have been made to feel like an outsider by some of the religious know-it-alls in our communities? Who are the people on the wrong side of the tracks? Jesus says, find out who those people are and love them just as I have loved you. Because that's what true disciples do. They have compassion for the outsiders. Now, lastly, in Matthew chapter 16, very quickly in those first 12 verses, we are reminded that as true disciples, that we run to Jesus and we keep running to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, we get some heavy duty stuff. We get the confession of Peter, which is you know, high watermark in Matthew's gospel. Jesus institutes the church, which he is now showing the disciples that he's redefining what is true Israel, but he's instituting the church. And But before we get there, he gives true disciples a warning. And he says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, of course, his disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They were thinking with their stomachs, what is the leaven of the Pharisees? This is what it is. It's unbelief. Jesus is saying, beware their teaching becomes it because it because it comes out of unbelieving hearts. Be, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, which is unbelief. Right? The Pharisees didn't believe. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe like this Canaanite woman. They didn't believe Jesus's word. They didn't care about, they had, they had every reason, by the way, to believe. They saw all of the signs and the wonders. This is why Jesus rebukes them. They had every reason to believe, but they didn't. They refused to follow him. But isn't it interesting, too, that there's many places throughout the Gospels that the disciples of Jesus didn't believe either, right? There are places where they were very hesitant in following Jesus. There were things that Jesus said that they were confused and did not like. There were many instances where they were behaving just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we do too, right? So what's the difference? Ligon Duncan points this out, and I really like it. He says that the Pharisees remained in their spiritual ignorance because they rejected Jesus when they were unwilling to go to him. They remained in their spiritual ignorance. They always had their eyes closed because they refused to go to Jesus. However, the disciples were brought out of their spiritual ignorance because they went to Jesus even when they were confused even when they were conflicted, even when they had failed, even when they had sinned, even when they did not like what Jesus said, they still went to Christ. They went to Jesus and they and they kept going to Jesus. John Calvin says one of the, um, the signs of a regenerate heart is a teachable spirit. And the disciples showed that. They, they confessed their ignorance. They confessed their, 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 their failures. They confessed their confusions. And through these actions, they were the living embodiment. Jesus, I believe, but please help me in my unbelief. And that's the difference. We are reminded throughout chapter 15, but also in these first 12 verses of chapter 16, brothers, we must run to Jesus. First off, we run to him for salvation. There's some of you that might be hesitant in going to Jesus because there's Jesus people, churchy people who have made you feel like an other. But I promise you, I guarantee you that when you run to Jesus Christ, he will never make you feel like an other, ever. He will never turn you away. He accepts you as you are. Now, he'll never leave you as you are. 
He will do a mighty work in your heart, so be prepared for it. But he will always accept you as you are. And when you come to him in faith, you will see that he will transform you from an outsider to a full-fledged member of the one royal, eternal family of God where you were cherished and loved by him forever. Go to him. Now, disciples were also reminded to continue to go to Jesus. Go to him always. When you fail, go to him. When you don't understand, go to him. When you're confused, go to him. When he says something to you in his word that you don't really like, go to him. Because when you do, I guarantee you that he will lead you in the way that you ought to go for your good, for your flourishing, and certainly for his glory. Jesus tells us what true discipleship is. We exalt the authority of God's word. We crave and desire holy hearts. We have compassion for the outsider. And we always go to Jesus. Praise be to him. Amen.